Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, and welcome aboard the Starship Zero G. Science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1789. Actually, I feel very French Revolution. 1789? You've given us a bit of a promotion. I, think I have. One, four, Sorry, 1479. It says he just uh, adjusting his set. 1479. We're still in the Middle Ages and not in the French, French Revolution. Sadly, not yet. <laughs> I am Rob Jam. And Megan McHugh. Hmm. Starting off with the actor. I like that acronym. The Australian Academy Cinema Television Arts slash Australian A Australian Film Institute Awards for 2024 have come out, mm-hmm. and one of our favourite shows, Deadlock, got a few gongs. Excellent. Yeah, uh, Kate Box picked up one for the best acting in a comedy, and they also got best editing for television, best original TV score, and best casting in television. Nice. And I think they're all richly deserved. Well done, Deadlock. Agree. Mm, a great yeah. series. And an Australian horror film also did well. Uh, Talk to me, it's called. Yes, that one's been much talked about. I'm, pr- <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty intrigued by it. I've heard it's quite good. Best direction in film to uh, Danny and Michael Filippo. Um, best film and lead actress Sophie Wilde. Um, best editing for Jeff Jeff Lamb's editing. Best original score by Cornell Wilsek. Best screenplay. Wow. Best sound. Mm. Quite a few it's ones. Cleaned up. One. Yeah. Um, and they also do sort of international type ones. So they gave a, an award for best visual effects or animation to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I could see that. Sure. Yeah. Um, an international award for best direction in film, which was for Oppenheimer for Chris. And also uh, best lead actor. Uh, Mr. Murphy from Oppenheimer. Ah, mm. well deserved. Yeah. And also Barbie got the uh, award for best film. Oh, great. And and Margot Robbie got the best actress award in a a, a, a reset of the Academy Awards. And she was in attendance, right? Yeah, she was. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Margot Robbie wore this on, you know. Uh, Ryan Gosling got um, uh, best supporting actor and... The International Award for Best Screenplay in Film went to Poor Things, Tony oh. McNamara's screenplay. Nice. And they also gave an award to, for Best Supporting Actress to Vanessa Kirby for Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, yeah, the Actor Awards nice. too. I just thought I'd, I'd touch base on them. We mess around with the Globes I and know. the Oscars and stuff. And yeah, let's have a look at something on home soil. That yeah. was a good rundown. That's actually a good segue for the next bit of stuff that we're talking about. And I have been reading a lot of climate change fiction mm-hmm. recently, uh, as well as some non-fiction too. J.G. Ballard, or is it all non-fiction now? <laughs> oh, especially, don't. Especially don't. the older stuff. J.G. <laughs> Ballard, right. I, you know, from my childhood, all of his 1960s stuff, the, the drowned world, the drought, all that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson yep. with his cutting-edge climate change novels. Uh, George Turner. Australia with um, Summer and Sea, which is actually set in a, a drowned Melbourne. Uh, Octavia Butler. Oh, yes, you've been on a big um, kick mm. with her, haven't you? Yeah, with her um, Parable of the Sower. Uh, Margaret Atwood with her trilogy of books, 
and Stephen Baxter as well, a great science fiction writer with his ones. And I've been reading a lot of these, so my mind is just yes. sort of either flooded or, or drought-ridden, mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. the case may be. Probably not too cold. You know, no, no, none of the um, alternative ones where you get the, the world suddenly put into a cold snap. Right. We're talking more the global warming piece. Yeah, yeah. So Gem- Generation Nemesis is the book under discussion by Sean McMullen. Okay. Well, Dr. Sean McMullen, as I could call him. Uh, it's a Wizard's Tower press book. came out in November 2022. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also available on Kindle eBook. And because it's a couple of years down the track now, um, I've actually looked it up just to see if there are copies available. Yeah, places like A Books and Booktopia and that kind of place, as well as um, I think Amazon has also got copies too. Okay, so Generation Nemesis. Dr. Sean McMullen is one of Australian science fiction and fantasy's most accomplished authors. 26 books, 101 stories, published in 12 languages. Uh, He's got nominations for the Hugo Awards, the British Science Fiction Association Awards. Uh, He's won many others. Um, His Great Winter Saga is a masterpiece of, well, let's call it clockwork (laughs) post-punk apocalyptic science fiction. Wow. I've probably got a few of those terms mixed up. Clockwork punk. Clockwork punk. (laughs) You know, like steampunk or diesel punk. Sure, sure. Uh, Several excellent short story collections he's done, Mm -hmm. as well as the solid fantasy series Moonworld. So, okay, one big science fiction saga series, Mm. big fantasy one, and amongst others, he's done a damn fine novel about time travel called Time Travel the Long Way, which is via cold sleep. Again, back to the temperature. Uh, and that's called Centurion's Empire. And that ends up being set in Melbourne too eventually. Oh, no. <laughs> He's done a lot of young adult fantasy and science fiction as well as worthy con- contributions to critical surveys of the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, his PhD is in medieval literature. He's a karate instructor, fourth dad, black belt. Cool. Uh, he's had 33 years at the Bureau of Meteorolog- Meteorology and Computing. Uh, he's a screenwriter, a singer, a musician. Last century... <laughs> Full disclosure, he used to hit me in the head with sticks in the Society for Creative Anachronism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if there was an action figure of Sean McMullen, I'd get one. <laughs> but he is his own action figure. Generation Nemesis is his climate change novel. It is set in 2045 mm-hmm. in Australia, very specifically in the Australian outback at a prison camp okay. or what they call a carbon reclamation centre. Now, the character in this, the main character is an elderly climate, climatologist who arrives at the camp in the usual way for those times. He's harnessed in a team of other people born before the year 2000, mm-hmm. pulling a freewheeling SUV, which has painted on it or stenciled on it, uh, no carbon was expended in, the, in this journey. So, you know, they're just pulling these cars there's a, a sort of a process designed to remind everyone how much energy went into old-style transportation. Right. This is like nothing like the Mad Max wasteland <laughs> apocalypse that you're used to. Um, the wheel has turned, so to speak, and people born after the turn of the century mm-hmm. hold power across a climate change-ravaged world, and they have no patience for the generations before who stole their inheritance. And, you know... It's too real. It is too real. And like Thanos, you think, 
they're half right. Yeah, I know. It's like I can see the point here, yeah. And that's why this, this novel is, is provocative and polarising mm. too because all of the people born before 2000, like me, and you can actually be judged guilty of crimes that you commit after 2000 too, so okay. the, the new generations are not exempt. Yep, yep. Uh, it's just they're not automatically considered guilty. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they haven't executed everybody. Oh, obviously. <laughs> flat out. <you laughs> okay, know, okay. Uh, because some of the people are still useful. Well, yeah, you want to get the value out. Yeah. So what happens to us? Well, they're being, <laughs> you know, we're being, uh, we're sentenced to various sorts of uh, remedial measures. Sure. You know, like um, uh, pulling apart the, the what's left of the wrecked cities and recycling that material. That kind okay, of putting thing. us to good use. Putting yeah. us to good use. But a lot of us... Uh, sent to the national audits and, mm. well, once you get to the the, uh, the the camp, you're subjected to those audits where pre-millennials are judged for their carbon footprints. Okay. And almost invariably sentenced to a variety of fiendishly inventive deaths that deliberately reflect their environmental crimes. <gasps> So, you said you know, we weren't sentenced to death. Ah, uh, well, you get, you know, not beforehand, but once you get right. to the audit there. Okay, that's the... the okay. you, you can be sort of, uh, have your sentence once you're in the camp, committed to doing some fairly useful sure, things okay. at the camp. You know, like burying bodies or or, or putting people through the uh, the executions. And, you know, and they're, they're quite clever and, and apt Horribly apt, you know, that the object all sublime is to make the punishment fit the crime. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, okay. So our hero, Dr Hall, who has not been subjected to the full weight of the audit yet, being a climatologist, I imagine, has actually volunteered to be processed, you know. So he's in his 80s and he has a mission. Uh, And he's just as determined to pursue this mission after a lifetime of trying to warn people about climate change, both professionally and in his own obsessively rigorous carbon-neutral lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, he does things that, uh, you know, when they say be as carbon-neutral as possible, yeah. he goes well beyond that. Okay. Well beyond that, which is a good deal more than you or I would be likely to do. Yeah, or have the capacity to do. Yeah, and that's all worked out in a very clever way and, and in convincing okay. detail as usual and fearsomely documented. Yeah. <laughs> So this provocative novel reminds me of a thought experiment short story from the 1960s and 70s. Well, actually, a lot of them. And it was quite quite common then to do that. We yep. Adept science fiction writers would take a topic and drill down into it succinctly and lay bare all the facets. So I'm really not surprised that Sean developed this novel from one of his own published short stories. So, you know, that, that, that sort of expansion. Uh, it's satirical, it's whimsical, it's gruelling mm-hmm. and worked out with Sean's perceptive keen eye for detail and, you know, the absurdities of human nature and, and, and technical detail as well as moments of black comedy. For example, uh, as they're putting Dr Hall through his paces in the tribunal there, <laughs> there develops a cheer squad for him <laughs> and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's women, you know, and they make bikinis out of plastic bags and other waste and... And, you know, and I was actually thinking this, this prison camp, it's out in the desert. It's pretty horrific. The, the, the executions are horrible and all yeah. that sort of stuff. But they're actually trying to be fair yeah, in okay. this sort of bureaucratic way, which is kind of amusing in its own. You know, you, you know these usual dystopic sort of places. Yeah. Well, you know, they have, um, they have weekly plays that the, the inmates put on. Okay. Admittedly, some horrible things can happen to them during those plays. <laughs> but, you know, 
you know, yeah, and, right. and they're allowed to cohabit with other prisoners. There's no sort of moral stricture on the place because yep. it doesn't matter. They're about to get, you know, death by shot. disposable cup or whatever, yeah. yeah. Uh, we are talking about Sean McMullen's, Dr. Sean McMullen's 2022 science fiction novel, a climate change novel, Generation Nemesis. And it's a corker of a novel, I think. I actually read it on a Kindle version. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I find reading on Kindle all right since yep. I've rediscovered my Kindle yep. after having lost it for two years. <laughs> Especially for books of some length, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's quite good, yeah. Like if you're reading that big um, book about uh, Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune is like 900 pages long. Yeah. <laughs> Not as easy to carry that. And as a Stephen no. King fan, ah. the Kindle comes in... Comes in good. He actually has written a few novels under 900 pages long, you know. Yeah, he's either short story <laughs> or huge novel. <laughs> yeah. Actually, one of his dystopic novels, uh, is it um, – uh, it's not The Road because that's the Cormac McCarthy one. The Long Walk? Yes. Yes. Yeah, which is a Stephen King pseudonym novel, but yeah. is one of yeah. his. That's quite slim. Yeah, he does do novellas, that is true. Hmm. Cleaving back to Generation Nemesis starts in that – <laughs> in a hair-raising way where the people being taken off to the climate change audit prison camp out in the outback, uh, they have to pull SUVs in harness as teams, just drag them along the roads to get there. There's so much in this novel that I found grim and amusing and satirical and all of those things. Um, but overall, it, it is actually... Weirdly enough, optimistic. Okay, I was going to ask, like, what's the takeaway? Like, how does it leave you feeling? What's the energy kind of as it wraps up based on, you know, the messaging and things? Well, it's a cautionary tale, of course. Mm. And the thing that anyone who reads this with any eye to reality is going to go, I feel so complicit in what's happened and the way the world will end up. You know, and we... The excuse is not in our time, mm. but we're actually seeing the results of climate change yeah. now all yeah. the time. Yeah. And, you know, you can only just imagine, especially science fiction fans. Yeah. You know, we've got plenty of of prior credit at imagining things, how things are going to go. And I can see this future that Sean has written in this of, of a generation literally burnt out and wanting to make people pay. Yeah, and looking for accountability. And I think mm. that is part of it, right, that it's very easy to not take responsibility mm-hmm. until you absolutely have to, and we don't want to wait too long for that. And I'm sure we'll ch- we'll run the usual excuses. We didn't know. Yeah. How can you say that? Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm just one person, yeah. et cetera, but one person can still do Yeah. Do what yeah. they can do, yeah. Or I was only following orders or all those other oh, well, excuses. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's interesting, the uh, the climate audits that they have, some people are just so far beyond the pale. Yeah. You know, like there's a uh, – you know, and you, when you think about it, in the ter- context of that, I suppose I should actually call out any of the people. <laughs> yeah, leave that to Sean, actually. He's, he's, uh, he's the author. But, yeah, some categories of, of jobs and stuff and you think – yeah, I can think that's a that's a fair call. Yeah, okay. I can see why they do that, and that's the, the very devil of this novel. That you're very much in sympathy with these poor people who are surviving, and it's a, a, as usual, it's an interesting take on the trope. Yeah, you know, this is not a civilization that's living some kind of exactly like a Mad Max future. Yeah, I mean, they have a space program. Yeah, um, they use the satellites to surveil 
prisoners escaping and that sort of thing. But but it's there nonetheless. It's, it's there and it's a green space program, a yeah. slow space program. Um, you know, and that's all well worked out. And that's just throwaway details. Yeah. Like that's the thing about Sean's book. There's so many ideas in them. I'm knocked yeah. over by them. I think it is interesting too to think about it as someone who is a millennial and was used to being the youngest generation for a long time and now the generation below me is like, you know, full-on grown-up adults and they have their own ideas and opinions and thoughts and, you know, as we all age and move into, you know, the power gets – there's a, a exchange and people move into high positions and, you know, everything just changes, that shift. I do always wonder what that – which direction that will go in and what that will look like because, you know, I think my generation was a bit – we're kind of a weird in-between space um, and it's probably time for us to, yeah, just start to step up and take a bit more action. What's the word for it? Um, intergenerational debt. Yes, yes. That's a great, yeah. Yes, it's an inconvenient truth, really. Mm. And so it also, because they, you know, they've got a quite a quite sophisticated technological civilization, even if it has been degraded and brought down, uh, makes you want to think twice before boasting online about an overseas holiday you know, unless you went on a sailboat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even then. I don't yeah, know. even then. You know, actually, owning certain pets can be a an issue. Yes. Well. Yeah. Especially cats that ungrateful cats that don't eat their breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> I know who I'm talking to there. Okay. Actually, our our themes today are, are heat Certainly. and cats. There's a lot of crossover here. What was the title of the book again? Generation Nemesis. It's by Sean McMullen, and it's from Wizards Tower Press is the actual uh, the actual paper copy, uh, but it also is also available on Kindle as an ebook and, and other places as well. All right, highly recommend it. I reckon it you know it should win some more awards. This one actually, if we, if oh, but it's uh, since it's been out for two years, all of those awards things have passed. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We'll talk about uh, a film next. So we're going to talk about Argyle. Mm. It's in cinemas now. It's a spy action comedy and it is directed by Matthew Vaughan. It's a sort of a joint production from Universal and Apple Original Films. Mm -hmm. Now, Vaughan's work, we're well across, we've spoken about on Zero G before. He's directed Layer Cake, Stardust, Kick-Ass and X-Men First Class. And he's probably most well-known in the recent past for his Kingsman series. So that includes um, Kingsman Secret Service, Kingsman The Golden Circle, and there's a more recent one called The King's Man. Mm. Uh, And he's also created this set of comic books and other sort of cross-media things that go into feed all into this Kingsman franchise that he's created. So uh, we're sort of his vibe for those uh, films is very fun and a little campy, and yeah. I think he sort of tries to carry that energy into this new film, Argyle, which is – I think it's okay that we can say it's sort of related to the Kingsman universe. Yes, absolutely. It's a shared universe, and uh, but we've got – a very different story and characters being introduced here. This one is written by Jason Fuchs Mm -hmm. and uh, Fuchs has previously worked on Pan and Wonder Woman. Mm. So we do know a little bit of his screenwriting already. 
One thing to mention about this film is the PR machine for this one has been in overdrive. Do you know, I actually haven't heard anything about it. Yeah, so this is is interesting. So there is a book that has come out at the same time as the movie. And the book is called Argyle. And the title is the same as the Argyle. The cover and everything and the author as what's in the film. So Argyle is by an author called Ellie Conway. Mm-hmm. And now Ellie Conway is also the central character in the film Argyle and both were released at the same time. So originally there was a lot of discussion around this book that was – this manuscript that was discovered and Vaughn really liked it and he wanted to make it into a movie and the book itself doesn't actually contain the plot of the movie. So this isn't – the book is the movie, the movie's an adaptation of the book. So the uh, – am I right in assuming that the, the, the book – wasn't written as a as a book, you know, or is it a tie-in for the movie? What are we talking yeah, about? Yes, so I'll just lay it out now, yeah. and I guess this is a spoiler for anyone who was sort of enjoying a little bit of the speculation around this one. Hmm. The author of Argyle, Ellie Conway, is a pen name. And so that was kind of revealed when people started digging into the publishing of this book and they couldn't locate this Ellie Conway character and they thought, okay, who's actually written this book? Mm-hmm. And we knew the movie was coming out soon and that it seemed kind of weird that, hey, this movie's already been made of this book. And there was a lot of rumours circulating that Taylor Swift had written Argyle oh. with this, all the free time she has. Oh, yeah. <laughs> copious, copious. I mean, there was various quote-unquote clues that were raised, like the Scottish Fold Cat and she likes Argyle. I know there's more, there's more evidence that was raised. That's actually the director's cat. Yes, well, he <laughs> has that cat yeah. because his kids wanted a cat because Taylor has one. Oh my god! So all right roads do lead back to Taylor Swift, of course. But I will—I am sorry to say here and now—I was very interested in maybe this would be some cool revelation, but it is just a ghost-written book. The book Argyle—it's actually written by two authors, Terry Hayes and Tammy Cohen, and Terry Hayes actually wrote the book I Am Pilgrim, which is a spy novel. So. Oh. It is a separate story. We can kind of put the book aside. And then if we pivot back and we have a look at the film. Right. So it's all just big PR tie-in in the, at the end of the day. So Hollywood has duped us once again. But the plot of Argyle, the film, we have mild-mannered, anxious author Ellie Conway, as, as mentioned, author yes. of the book, does not really exist, lives a solitary life with her cat Alfie, the Scottish fold that I mentioned, um, and she writes this best-selling spy book series called Argyle, where the central character is a handsome, suave spy called Aubrey Argyle, and he travels the world taking down baddies and is played by Henry Cavill. Uh, Ellie, who's played by Bryce Dallas Howard, her quiet life is disrupted when she finds out that the imagined events in her popular book series are actually describing real-life events and her current unfinished manuscript may hold the secrets of some real-life underworld espionage if she can write what happens next. So guided alongside an actual super spy, played by Sam Rockwell, um, who plays a character called Aiden, Ellie and her cat Alfie and Aiden race around London with uh, the Division in pursuit. So the Division is a sinister, real-life dark organisation that mirrors the one in her Argyle series. Mm. So both parties are frantically trying to find the Magic MacGuffin, which is a master file of all of the Division agents worldwide. So pretty standard spy book stuff here, but that's as much as we're going to talk about because there are some twists and turns in store, Mm. which we won't get into Mm. too much. But, yes, so it's all kind of a big 
cross-media PR marketing exercise in this book and then the movie and all of the tie-in material. So, hmm. Well, there's a, a pretty good cast for this. Yes. Bryce Dallas Howard. Yes, yeah, so she plays Ellie Conway. Uh, she's obviously been in the Jurassic World series, the revamped Jurassic Park movies. She was in one of the best episodes of Black Mirror called Nosedive, the oh, yeah, social yeah. rating one. Uh, she replaced another actress in the Twilight Saga. She played one of the vampires. She was in The Village. She's famously a Nepo baby. <laughs> Gwen, Gwen Stacy in uh, Spider-Man yes, 3. Yes, that's true. I forgot about that. Mm. And she's also done some directing. So she directed uh, some episodes of The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett as well. Oh, and of course she's uh, Claire Deering in the Jurassic World trilogy. Yep. And I will point out that they focus in upon a scene in this movie in Argyle where she takes her heels off before she runs. Uh, I didn't think about that as a nod, but that's a good one. And I'm beginning to wonder if... You ever see her running in any movie now? She's going to kick off those There's going to be a specific scene. (laughs) I do think this is the kind of movie that's pretty aware of all the movies that have come before it, if you know what I mean. And we can't mention some of them because we'll give the game away. Exactly. But I do think it it feels very meta in ways you can't always point Mm. out, but... Satirically meta is what they're going for here. Is what they're going for. Whether they succeed, we'll, we'll uh, get to yes. that. We'll get to that in a moment. What do you think of BDH in this? Great, great question. Um, I don't want to be negative. Okay. I think that she... I think that I would have liked to see maybe someone else in the role. I don't think it's quite the right fit for me. Hmm. It grated a bit. I think that she did a fairly decent job of... Um, Layering some of the character requirements. Yeah, because it's a tough ask what she has to do. It is, it is. And I think that it, it I don't think it quite hit the mark for me, hmm. let's say. What about you? What, did, what were your thoughts? I actually thought she was fairly solid in this. I don't know if she actually gels quite well with certain interests in the, in the film, but I think she made a, a pretty good fist of what she was doing, what she was given. Yes, you know. okay. You know, I'm just saying this because Ron Howard's in country. <laughs> <laughs> you got to keep keep our eyes out. I think probably. No, I'm not actually. I did like her in this. I think one of the things for me was films like this, where you have sort of a central two people that go on this unlikely adventure together, really need to have rock solid chemistry. And I don't feel necessarily. I think. So we'll talk about her counterpart, Sam Rockwell. He plays Aiden. He's kind of her guide. He's a spy. He kind of rips her out of this ordinary life that she's been living. And I think their chemistry and their kind of playing in the scenes together has to be so good because it carries most of the film. They're in mostly all of the scenes together for much of the film. Uh, I just don't think... I think Sam Rockwell is trying his darndest to make the spy thing work, and I think he does a good job. But ultimately, I think that chemistry was a bit off for me. And I think part of the reason for that, because Sam Rockwell is a bloody good actor. And he's done this kind of thing before, and yeah. he's done the action thing, and he's even done the spy thing before. And he's he's not intended to be suave or or, or sophisticated in this. He's, he's more scrappy. He's scrappy and he's world-weary as well. And there are reasons for that. Yeah. And he is, you can see he's actually cleaving to that. And there's reasons why he can't be an, uh, a a more Bondian sort of spy? Yes, yes. You know. he's, he's directly in contrast with sort of the Argyle yeah. stereotype. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, he's standing in contrast to Henry. Yes, basically. exactly. So, exactly. yeah. Um, 
I do like that uh, that Sam gets to do dancing in this. I mean, he you've got to. If you have Rockwell in the movie, you've got to give him some dancing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the whole Justin Hammer thing going and that. Yeah. So I like actually liked him in this, and I thought their chemistry was better than the chemistry we saw in a kind of a similar movie, The Grey Man. Yeah, interesting. What, but that's a low bar. I, I would also say that um, the film Ghosted, which we both watched, yes. chemistry in that was a bit off too, which is a bit of yeah. a disappointment because Chris Evans and Anna de Armas should have done well together. But that was another, I think, wasn't example. That, wasn't that The Grey Man or am I thinking of it? I think you're thinking of Ghosted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Actually, The Grey Man also is kind of similar too. Yes, yes. This whole spy thing is really taking off. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, we're just running through a couple of the key players here. We talked a little bit about Bryce Dallas Howard as Ellie and Sam Rockwell as Aiden. I'll run through a couple of the others. We also have Brian Cranston in the mix, having a lot of fun as the head of the division. He's really enjoying himself as a beautifully suited bad guy um, and leaning into that quite a bit and making the most of probably what's a pretty thin role, but, you know, he's I'm, I'm sure he's happy to walk away, walk away and cash his cheque. We also have Catherine O'Hara, who plays Ellie's mother. First saw her in Beetlejuice. Yes, Beetlejuice and Home Alone. And most recently, um, she's had a bit of a revival because she's in Schitt's Creek as well. Uh, she's actually in the uh, Beetlejuice sequel too, which is a no Oh, which no is coming brainer. up. Yeah, yeah nice. Um, so we've got them in there as well. And we mentioned Henry Cavill. He does play a bit of a role as Argyle, who is the spy from Ellie's book. He's done this before. So he was in The Man from UNCLE. He's done, you know, Superman, The Witcher, Enola Holmes. So he's no stranger to action and that kind of thing. I think, what did you think of him in this? Again, as we were saying with Sam Rockwell, I think that the the very nature of the part that he's playing in this, which we won't go into, uh, somewhat handicaps him in the area of being the spy. Yes. Um, I think he's... Got a really strange hairdo that makes no sense whatsoever. I wonder if I really – I found him pretty underwhelming, honestly. I thought it was kind of a paper thin, but then I wonder if that's, like you say, what he's been given yeah. or if it's him. Like I just felt it wasn't very charismatic or impactful, which is a bit of a shame because I know he can do it. Like we've seen him do this before. Full, like Full credit to him for – you know, embodying the, the Bondian physicality of the role, though. I mean, my God, he'd be a great Bond. That's true, but Bond is not just like, you know, yeah. he comes with this certain persona and charisma, and for me, Henry just was not bringing that to the screen in this. I mean, for one thing, though, he does have this outrageous dark green s- suit. I think he, it's... He pulls that off, actually. I, no, he doesn't take it off, folks, but <laughs> he actually he actually carries that... Yes. I would not think a human being could do that quite And I so do well. think that what <laughs> makes me think that it's meant to be a little bit of a caricature. Like oh, this is the point we're going totally, for with the yeah. costuming, all of that. So maybe I should give him credit for doing that well. <laughs> that opening sequence in, in, in the film, which sort of reminds me of half a dozen Roger Moore opening yes. sequences yep, yep. Uh, in a Bond film, that was great. Yeah, yeah. I was totally there for him as that. In that film. And I will say if that's the bit you enjoyed, you'll probably be in for a bit more yeah. of it, a treat down the line. But that um, little opening sequence that Robbie mentioned was riddled with cameos. We also have Dua Lipa in there, John Cena and Richard E. Grant. 
mm. popping up there in some brief cameos too. So there's maybe a few other char- there's a few other characters that I probably just won't mention because I think the yeah, film... Yeah, leave it, leave it to the audience to yeah, discover. Yeah, the film does like to do quite a few reveals, which for me I think is part of, of the issue here. But, yeah, I guess let's just... Rob, what was your... The only other, I did want to mention um, Louis Lewis Partridge there, who we've seen before in um, playing Lord Viscount Tewkesbury in uh, Enola Holmes. Yes, which oh, yes. Henry Cavill was also in. So I was going to yeah. leave him out, but yes, yeah, no, he, yeah. he is I in just, this. That was kind of fun. Anyway, um, yeah, well, look, the the movies that it borrows from will be immediately obvious to any spy-fi buff. Yeah. Um, and mostly borrows from the purpose of sending them up. But we will not, will not really go into that because it gives too much of the game away. See, I, I don't know if it sends them up so much as just borrows. Like, I don't think it's actually oh. saying anything. I don't think it's really spoofing these. I think it's trying to play amongst them, if that makes sense. Because a lot of the things it's referencing are older films as well. I think yeah, yeah. he has said that he looked a lot to sort of 80s action and things like that to infuse the film with a certain energy. It's not spoofing it per se. I think it's just heavily inspired. Mm. Um, stealing from them. <laughs> to the point to the point where, and I think I said this before, is it just kept reminding me of all the other films that I've seen do yeah, this yeah. stuff better, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, there's a fine line between homage and, and, and copying. Yeah. But I, I felt like he was trying to stitch together a bit of pastiche there of that. Yes. Sometimes some of the stitches are actually showing. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you right. can see what he's trying to do with this. Yeah. Like there's... Clear references, clear throwbacks, which are very intentional. So, do you know the um, the, the director Matthew Vaughan? His full name is Matthew Allard Robert Vaughan, and he was born in 1971. Now, the man from Uncle Television series mm. was a child of the 60s, and I reckon I don't know this. I want to find out, but I wonder if his parents called him Robert Vaughan after the guy who originally played Napoleon Solo in The Man from Uncle. Oh. Robert Could and be. I'm wondering, you know, because names are powerful things yeah. and it can influence you. So I'm, I'm just wondering, his name is Robert Vaughan. Did he watch The Man from Uncle later on and then got to go, oh, I want to make spy films? <laughs> I'd love to ask him that. Anyway, moving on to what, what, what we thought about it. Look, I don't think they quite explore the relationship between Sam Rockwell's agent and Henry Cavill's enough. And it's clearly set mm. up to be that, and I think there's a lot more to mine in the concept than they actually did. Yeah, I think they lent on a pretty easy visual representation without actually mm. doing much more. At the same time, I thought that the stunting that they, because both of those are heavily involved in that, uh, and the fights were really well choreographed. Yes, there was some great fight, really inventive, mm. deliberately campy and fun action, which I'm on board for. Like, I think if you're doing something ridiculous, lean in and do it 100%. And they did with they the did. fights. Yeah. One of the silliest, funniest dance fights that I've ever seen, and I've mm, seen a few. Mm, mm. Uh, stunning opening sequence. Um, you know, I, I'm, I've always say that the physicality, the choreography, the stunts, the action, they're a major part of these films are like another character and I think they actually fulfilled my expectations there. Yeah. You know, and I was laughing uproariously in the cinema. <laughs> I think I went in, I was a little, I took to it less. Um, I think my main issues were probably Bryce Dallas Howard and also the plot. So... 
the pacing, it's too long. It's two hours and 20 minutes, which is far too long for something like this. Yeah, they definitely needed to trim. They dragged it out. And I think the fact it was too long and overly complicated just meant it was hindering what it could be rather than enhancing it. I think if it had been shorter, clearer, more cohesive and concise, if he'd focused on a couple of key twists and sort of just made it all a little bit less... I think that would have made a far better movie, far more enjoyable experience. Like I am here for, like I'm not here to be like, oh, this was ridiculous or that would never happen in real life. Like ridiculous is fine. Bring it. But when it's over, (laughs) it's too much or there's too much of it and it goes on for too long, then you just lose me and I can no longer just suspend and be on along for the ride. And I think that was kind of part of the issue. I just couldn't grip onto it. It was like a speeding train and I just couldn't get a good handhold, <laughs> unfortunately. On the <laughs> like nonsense just abounded and I just couldn't get past it. And I'm usually really happy to switch off and just enjoy that stuff. But I think the lack of chemistry also didn't help for me. Like I didn't really feel that invested. So despite going in, I had this weird thing where I wanted so much more from it because I love a spy caper yeah. I, and I, I enjoy his other films. I wanted a lot from it, but at the same time I already had some pretty low expectations, which is kind of a weird way to take I'd, a film I'd never in. heard of this. I knew nothing about it. Yeah, okay. I thought it was an advertisement for socks. <laughs> or cats. Or cats. I enjoyed the meta story behind the plot. Mm-hmm. I liked the way it worked around a particular trope that I can't mention. Yep. It's become a cliche in a particularly ruthless way. Yeah. Uh, I thought that's a good solution to that. The Scottish Fold Cat, well, there's a lot of CGI, yeah. which kind of amused me in a way. It's meant to be the funny, furry sidekick. And I know it's not real because it doesn't jump on Ellie's keyboard at any stage. <laughs> yeah, at an opportune moment, yeah. Yeah, so I'm sort of, with, I'll give him that. Uh, it just doesn't bug me. I know, I'd rather see them use CGI for oh, the cat. Some of that things that poor cat was doing, I, <laughs> yes, please, let's I make think, him a digital. I think we haven't mentioned it's quite neatly international. Yes. Uh, in a Bond sort of way. Yeah. But kind of also not. You <laughs> yeah, know, like yeah. a Bond thing. We'll spend more time in a location in a Bond movie usually. But, you know, as we said, it's, I think it's a bit too long. And I think they could have – actually, I actually think they could have sped it up more of a, a sort of a more maniac pace, like kick-ass. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. Like really lean into it a bit more, make it a little bit more ridiculous. And some of the things that happen I, I quite appreciate it at one stage – one of the characters does something and he stops and takes a long look at it and says, well, that was convenient. Yeah, that was a good moment. <laughs> you know, so there are more good of, moments, more, more of, of that. More of that, more of that. And I do think the core trope that we're not going to talk about, I love that trope <laughs> and I want to see that done well. It's, we, so, we operate on a need-to-know basis. I know, I know. I feel bad doing that. But I do think it's sort of one of the core surprises of the film. So yeah, yeah. We don't want to ruin that. But I well, Here's an interesting thing. Um, sometimes when you go to the pictures, you take your mood with you. And I, as I said, I've been reading climate change novels for the past yeah. couple of weeks. I desperately needed a break. Yeah. And when I went in, I went to, into a cinema that had been renovated. Yep. With brilliant new seating. You were comfy. You comfy, were in the mood. Yeah. Air conditioned. Ready um, to enjoy. I saw the uh, the trailer for Dune 2, yep. which actually looked um, oh, yeah. more interesting than the, the first one. Uh, you know, I was in a good mood. So I... The good mood actually sustained itself for most of the movie, but I did. I was comf- I was aware that this film was too long for what yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, to, to contrast that, I was in a cinema that aircon wasn't working in, so maybe that did affect it. The climate didn't change. <laughs> it didn't, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no. I do think, though, at the core of it, 
I I just it grated too much on me and and it was a bit too contrived and not in a way that I can forgive unfortunately so <laughs> yeah a bit of a shame really um we'll be interested to see if it does set itself up for more films it will be interesting to see if that happens my zero g yeah no nah, maybe scale is because I was in a, a mood to see a film that was was silly is uh, maybe you know I, yeah. I wouldn't pan this film. <laughs> Fuchs did the uh, script yeah, for that. But, um, yeah, it could have been a lot – I feel like it could have been a lot better. Agree, agree. I think it was a bit of a missed opportunity and, and that grates on me more than, than something that's just out and out bad, I think. Mm. So. And there was $200 million involved in this somewhere, whether, whether Netflix paid that for, this, for the uh, rights to the Apple, film. Apple. Apple, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a budgeted $200 mil and the box office at the moment is hovering about $43 mil, mm. so – it's not done very well, which I, I mean, I don't relish that and I don't delight in a movie's failure. But you know what? I've seen movies, as we all know, I've seen movies before that failed at the box office that I loved. And a lot so, of cult yeah. movies don't do well when they first come out. But I think, look, yeah, you, you know what you're in for. I think we've given you enough of, of a rundown that mm-hmm. there's probably still a time and a place to see and enjoy this for sure. But yeah. just know that it's it's too long <laughs> and you've got to try and keep up. Ah, oh, those dance fights, though. And there's, but there are some good, <laughs> some good gimmicky fight scenes. Yeah. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.